beginning. If you're new, I'm Jamie. I am one of the pastors here, and I have the privilege and honor of uh, pretty much doing everything in the service today, uh, along with preaching, and uh, it's a joy of mine. Thank you uh, to the members of this church for continuing to give me the privilege of being one of your pastors and to preach the Bible. It's, it, it sincerely is. I know I've said this before, but I, I truly mean it. This is one of the great joys of my heart, to get up on the Lord's Day and to open God's Word and to expound it before us all. And so, if you have a copy of the Bible, uh, please go to Amos chapter 8. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, there is one under the chair in front of you. Amos chapter 8 will be found towards the middle of the Bible, page 769 is where we will start our reading. Page 769 in the church Bible. What we're going to do is uh, we're going to take on the entire chapter of Amos chapter 8 today. I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we're going to go back and work through it verse by verse. Um, Should be around 45 minutes or so. Amos chapter 8. This is the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people, Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord. So many dead bodies They're thrown everywhere. Silence. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath, that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great? And deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, and sell the chaff of the wheat. Then the Lord has sworn, by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account, and everyone mourn who dwells in it? And all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt. On that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son, and the end of it like a bitter day. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst of water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea. And from north to east, they shall run to and fro and seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. In that day, the lovely virgins and the young men will sh- will sh- shall faint for thirst. 
those who swear by the guilt of Samaria. And say, as your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your written word. Thank you, Father, that we don't live in a famine of the word of God. But that every day we, we have a gift of life, we can wake up and open your word and hear you speak. And so we ask you, God, that you would be kind to us this morning and speak to us through this chapter in the book of Amos. Teach us, shape us, mold us, and form us. Deepen our love and delight in the Lord Jesus through what we read here this morning. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. The Lord uses many different things to sanctify me. One of the greatest tests of Christ-likeness in my own life is whenever I hit print on my computer. The printer has one job. And you know how this goes, right? You hit print, and you wait a second, and then you wearily walk your way towards your printer, afraid to, that if you moved too fast, you would upset the balance of the printer universe and never get what you're trying to print. And it seems to me that more often than not, I hit print, and I wait, and I stare at the printer, and the printer stares back at me like what? And I wait. And uh, I don't get what I printed. And I'm telling you, if I did not believe in the perseverance of the saints, I would lose my salvation twice or three times a week with that printer. The fact that we have portable printers in our offices is a modern miracle. It is a luxury that we take for granted. The reformer Martin Luther wrote that printing is the ultimate gift of God and the greatest one. Now, Luther was a man given to hyperbole, but his point is well made. You see, because Luther lived in the Middle Ages, toward the end of the Middle Ages and the dawn of the Renaissance, the Middle Ages were a thousand-year period of human history that are characterized by feudalism and kings and peasants and the church was very big and very powerful. Rank heresy was the order of the day, and almost no one opposed it. For how could they? The common churchgoer had no Bible to read, and most were illiterate. The Middle Ages ended around the 15th and 16th century with the rise of the Renaissance. The Renaissance period saw major changes, advances in human learning and science and news and plenty of revolution. Historians point to many factors that contributed to such rapid change, but perhaps the most influential was the invention, which happened in Germany in 1440 by a goldsmith named Johannes Gutenberg of a printer the printing press. A distant 
ancestor of that HP piece of garbage that sits in my office today. And even though it's way older, it's probably way more consistent. The Gutenberg Press is probably the greatest invention of the Middle Ages. And Gutenberg's greatest accomplishment with his printing press was the first run of the Bible in Latin. He produced some 200 copies over a period of three years, a speed which would have been considered miraculous at the time. The invention of the printing press and the movable type literally turned the world upside down. And in the decades that followed, improvements were made, and during the Reformation, Bibles were translated into the common language of the people and distributed everywhere. And for the first time in human history, God's people could possess a printed copy of God's Word in their own language to be used in their own homes. Cornerstone, the English Bible that you hold in your hands, that lays in your lap, is a blood-bought miracle. Men and women have died translating and copying God's Word into a language that you could read and understand. The Holy Bible in the vernacular, paired with high literacy rates, is a treasure of God's kindness in the modern age. And I pray that we would never take God's Word for granted. With God's Word in the language of God's people, the authority shifted from the church to the Word. And God's people were able to recapture precious doctrines by reading God's Word. Doctrines like grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone to the glory of God alone. All because God's people saw that authority comes from Scripture alone. The Lord saved His church from total apostasy through the invention of a printer. In Amos chapter 8, God has reserved His fiercest judgment yet. A famine. A famine not of food. Not of water, a famine of himself, a famine of his word. Amos' audience in the 8th century BC had brought this famine upon themselves. They had given themselves over to false worship, to grave social injustices, and God had warned them over and over. He had warned them, and they persisted in their sin, working for self-advantage at the expense of others. They despised the things of God, they oppressed the poor, and the heaviest of God's judgment falls upon them. And my prayer is that this message would be used fruitfully in your life, that you would appreciate the work of Christ on the cross, and to see, as we will in a moment, that His reversal of these judgments should bring rejoicing to your life. Rejoicing in Him, rejoicing in His Word, and that by God's grace, we would never take for granted the true gift of the Holy Bible.
If I could summarize the message in one sentence, it would be this, that God forsook His only Son to save a people who forsook the only God. That God forsook His only Son in order to save a people who had forsaken the only God. We'll unpack this chapter in four parts. First, we'll see that the time of God's judgment has come in verses 1 to 3. The time of God's judgment has come. Second, the reason for God's judgment is just in verses 4 to 6. The reason for God's judgment is just. Third, we'll see that the weight of God's judgment is heavy in verses 7 to 14. The weight of God's judgment is heavy. And then finally, we'll turn to the cross and we'll see that the reversal of God's judgment is precious. So let's get to work. The time for God's judgment has come. Let's look at verses 1 to 3 again. This is what the Lord God showed me, Amos says. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And the Lord said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. And then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. So many dead bodies. They're thrown everywhere. Silence. I told you before that Amos enjoys wordplay. In the original language, the word for summer fruit sounds very much like the word for end. And Amos plays on the word end throughout this chapter. He wants his audience to know that the end has come. The end is near. The summer fruit has ripened. It's just like if you leave ripened fruit on your counter for too long, it begins to rot, it stinks, and if it's left there long enough, it attracts bugs. Unrepentant, in sin, unrepentant sin in Israel had been left for too long, not dealt with, not thrown in the trash. God's people had been warned over and over about this sin, and they had not repented. They had re- continued in this rebellion against God, and so His judgment had come. The time had come. The, the fruit is ripe. And the Lord says, I will never again pass by them. And we saw that same phrase back in chapter 7. And we must understand that repetition, repetition is a sure sign of God's mercy. Scripture uses an economy of language. And so when something is repeated, it's repeated for emphasis. And we must, must, must pay attention. The Lord says that songs of rejoicing will become wailings. And in verse 3, Verse 3 is is hard to read. So many dead bodies. It just leaves such a picture in your head that death will be so swift and so widespread that there will be no time to bury the dead. There will just be bodies stacked upon bodies in silence. No matter how deserving the sinner of God's judgment, no matter how wicked the sinner, God's judgment is a heavy thing. Hell is no joke. And it is unfitting of a Christian to use the word hell as a a throwaway word. To make jokes of hell. It's a real place. 
a very sobering place. In Ezekiel 33, verse 11, God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. And so silence is an appropriate response to such devastation. Can you imagine a city once loud with movement and children and businessmen and merchants and entertainment is silent. I remember those videos from the early days of the pandemic of New York City. And it's just no one. Fifth Avenue is empty. A city which is always busy is dead. And Amos sees that, but it's not because people are in their apartments in quarantine, but because people are dead. It is a sobering picture, this. In the verses that follow, we see the reason for God's judgment. And we see that God's judgment is just. Verses 4 to 6 tell us that the reasons for God's judgment are just. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be done so that we can offer wheat for sale? We can make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the shaft of the wheat. There is a stark contrast between verses 1 to 3 and 4 to 6. We have to come through verses 1 to 3 with reverent sobriety. The heavy hand of God's justice has fallen on His people. So many dead bodies. And then in verse 4 to 6, we're met with lightness. Lightness with which God's people treat the things of God. In verse 3, it's suffocating silence. And in verse 5, Israel can't, be, can't wait to be done with God's stuff so they can get back to making money. Amos addresses his prophecy to those who trample on the needy and depress the poor. Those people who say that they can't wait for the new moon to be over, for the Sabbath to be done so they can get back to racketeering. The new moon, the Sabbath, these were holy days reserved for worship and devotion to God. God had commanded a Sabbath once a week. He had commanded certain days of the year to be reserved for rest, for enjoyment of the things that God had provided. And no work was to be done on these days. It was a day of rest, a day of pleasure, a day of joy, a day of devotion to God. But these people here, they can't wait for God's day to be over so that they can get back to making money using unjust means. When will the new moon be over? When will the Sabbath be done so that we can start selling grain again and offering wheat for sale? As if that's not bad enough, Amos exposes their wicked business practices. He says they want to get back to work to make the ephah small and the shekel great. The ephah was a standard measurement of dry goods. 
So to make the ephah small is to tamper with the measurements, to make them smaller so that the buyer would get less of what they paid for. The shekel was the customary weight of payment. So to make the shekel great, to make it heavier, the buyer would pay extra. The scales are being bent in the favor of these merchants. They'll buy under value and they'll sell overpriced. Furthermore, they're selling the chaff of the wheat. The chaff is the useless part of the plant which is usually discarded. And they're selling selling it to the poor. In God's law, He had set a standard for fair measurement, for fair weights and balances. And to tamper with these standards was a big deal. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, we read that a full and fair weight you shall have, a full and fair measure you shall have, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. For all who do such things, all who act dishonestly, are an abomination to the Lord your God. These unfair business practices would have made the working class poor subject to impossible economic situations. They would have had to incur debt just to feed their families. And the debt would just get worse and worse until eventually they would have to sell themselves and their families into slavery in order to pay off these debts. Which meant that the rich who were putting them in debt could then purchase the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. And so once again, in the book of Amos, the prophet addresses human trafficking, exploitation of the poor in Israel, in the people of God, trafficking one another, souls for profit. Can can you imagine the depravity of the human heart that Amos is addressing here? As God's own people are observing God's Sabbath, supposed to be resting in God's provision, their minds are preoccupied with buying and selling the poor for profit. God had told His people how the poor were to be cared for. In His Word, Leviticus 25, if your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him. As though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God, that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. You see what the Lord is doing there? He's asking, do you remember who you were when I came to you? You were slaves, living on nothing. And I saved you, I redeemed you, and I brought you into a land that you didn't have to fight for. And I gave it to you. And all that you have was a gift from me. 
So what does it say of your heart that you're refusing to give to those who are poor? But that's not just what was happening in Israel here. The rich were not just not taking care of the poor. They were exploiting the poor. They weren't relieving their situation. They were exasperating it. They were making it worse for profit. And there are instructions for us here in this passage. The world of business is not a secular opportunity to get rich. It is an opportunity to do your part to advance the gospel to the glory of God. Christians ought to conduct their business affairs in a Christ-exalting way. Turning a profit is good. It is how we support our families. It's how we support our churches. It's for the glory of Christ in the earth. And therefore, because business is meant to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ, business should be done with integrity and fairness and according to biblical principles. If God has given you a mind for business, a mind for making money, go ahead and earn good wages. Find a way to draw a straight line from your balance sheet to the glory of Christ in the earth. And fight greed in your heart with radical generosity and with kingdom principles. Notice that Amos chapter 8 isn't just about racketeering. Amos is addressing the attitude of these people toward the things of God. They couldn't wait to get God's stuff out of the way so that they could get on to real life. Sabbath is a practice of faith. Israel was meant to work for six days and then rest on the seventh. One day a week was purposefully set aside for rest in God's provision as a purposeful recognition that God is our provider. It's not my ingenuity. It's not my business acumen that provides for me. It is my God who provides for me. For the Christian, Jesus Christ is our Sabbath rest. We rest in His finished work. Every day of our life is an admission that we can't save ourselves, we can't sustain ourselves. We are wholly and fully dependent upon Him. Every day we admit our limitations, we trust in God's sovereign will, and we rest. We've talked about this before, but sleep is a great expression of your faith. Because you shut off, and God keeps going. Of all the things that Jesus said, I wonder if it is finished is the hardest one to believe. The people in Amos' day couldn't wait to get done with the Sabbath so they could get back to racketeering the poor, get back to selling human souls for profit. And so God's judgment upon them is just. And what was this judgment? Well, we look at verses 7 to 14, we'll see it unveiled before us. God's judgment is heavy. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. 
Shall not the land tremble on this account, and everyone mourn who dwells in it? And all of it rise like the Nile, and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I'll make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I'll turn your feasts into mourning and your songs into lamentation. I'll bring sackcloth in every waist and baldness on every head. I'll make it like the morning for an only son, at the end of it, like a bitter day. The Lord swears for the third time in the book of Amos by the pride of Jacob. He is going to bring his judgment on his people. And this is God's response to the wickedness that we saw in verses 4 to 6. And he says, I'll never again forget any of their deeds. Never. Any. There's just no escape. Justice will be served. And then in verse 8, we read a rhetorical question. Shall not the land tremble on this account? The land tremble. God is speaking His judgment. Shouldn't the land tremble? Notice the effect of sin on the land itself. And this is something the Bible speaks to often. In the Garden of Eden, the land was cursed because of Adam's sin. God told His people in His law that if you follow my commandments, the land will be blessed. But if you break all of my commandments, the land will be cursed. The prophet Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea spoke of the land mourning the sins of God's people. Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul writes of creation itself groaning. What is being pictured here is a reversal of all things, the stable things. The stable ground swells like a river. It's just tumultuous, like an earthquake. The sun goes down at noon. There's darkness in the middle of the day. Feasting becomes mourning. Happy songs become lamentations. Mourners wear sackcloth, which is the garments of, 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 of grief and lamentation. They shave their heads, which is what they would do when they were in, in grief. Everyone is mourning the judgment of God, and we're told that this will be a bitter day of great mourning. Verse 10 says that it will be like the mourning for an only son. Do you catch all of the references back to Egypt? The Nile, the loss of the only son. This is heavy judgment. And as bitter an end as this would be, it's about to get worse. Let's pick up reading in verse 11. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. In that day, the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, as your God lives, O Dan, as the way of Bersheba lives, they shall fall. 
and never rise again. Worse than a famine for bread or water is a famine for God's Word. These people wander from sea to sea, from the Dead Sea in the south, the Mediterranean Sea in the west, from north to east. The idea here is that God's people search everywhere. They're looking everywhere for a word from the Lord. And what do they find? Nothing. Silence. The Hebrew language is a pictorial language. And the imagery being employed here is that of people blindly groping about in desperate search of something. And they don't find it. Because God is silent. It is the heaviest weight of God's judgment. You see, because if you don't have food and water, the worst thing that can happen to you is you die. But if you don't have the Word of God, the worst thing that can happen to you is you die forever. God is the giver of life. God is the sustainer of life. His are the words of eternal life. He is the only refuge and safe place. And these people go looking for Him. Go looking for a word. Maybe they're looking for a word of reassurance. But they find nothing. Maybe they pray. But heaven is silent. In verse 13... Even the youth faint under the weight of this judgment. Thirsty for a word from God, they cannot find a word from God and they collapse under the weight of this judgment. Verse 14 is admittedly difficult. It seems that in the absence of a word from Yahweh, the people turn to false gods. In the absence of God's truth, the people make their own truth. They swear by the guilt of Samaria. To swear by something is to swear loyalty to it. The Hebrew word translated as guilt sounds a bit like the name of an Assyrian goddess in that day, which may have been worshipped alongside Yahweh in Samaria. The way of Beersheba might also be a play on words. It could have been an epithet for another foreign deity or something. No one really knows what verse 14 means, but whatever the exact references are, the meaning of this verse is clear, that the condemnation is, God's condemnation is upon those who seek false gods in lieu of a word from the Lord. And verse 8 comes and says, they shall fall, or Amos 8 says that they will fall and they will never rise again. the hope that a man places in himself, in the things of his world, in false worship, is doomed to failure. It is empty. And this is how Amos 8 ends. Heavy, heavy judgment. 
dead bodies in the street, the sky dark, mourners in sackcloth, their lamentations. And then worst of all, the only one who could save them has gone silent. But that's not how Amos 8 ultimately ends. You see, a reversal of these judgments is on the horizon. A reversal of God's judgment is coming. And it is precious. 800 years after Amos chapter 8, God broke the silence. An angel appeared to a teenage girl in a town called Nazareth. A virgin conceived and bore a son, and they called his name Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus Christ came to reverse the judgments of God on his people. You see, God would speak. His word would be found. Not because God's people went in search of a word from God, but because God came to his people and spoke to them. Jesus Christ, who is called the Word of God, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Whereas under God's judgment, Israel would mourn like the loss of an only Son, God's magnificent grace would send His only Son to suffer the final judgment of God and to reverse the curse of Amos Chapter 8, in the garden of Gethsemane, God the Father ignored the prayers of God the Son. Heaven was silent. The Father hid His face from His only Son as every sin on Him was laid. And while the Son of God hung lifeless on the cross as the sins of the world were laid on Him and the sun went dark, darkening the earth in broad daylight, the land trembled as Jesus died. Jesus Christ took the divine darkness reserved for His people. He felt and suffered the silence from His Father. And why? To reverse the curse of God's judgment for the sins of His people. All of God's judgments fell upon His Son. Everything in verses 7 to 14 are reversed. In verse 7, the Lord swears that He will never again pass by sin. But in Christ, God remembers our sin no more. In verse 8, the land trembles under God's judgment. At the cross, the ground shook under God's judgment. Those united to Christ in faith, the ground becomes an unshakable foundation. In verse 9, there is darkness. At the cross, darkness covered the whole land. Those in Christ, our darkness has become resurrection light. The morning of verse 10 is turned to feasting. Lamentation is turned into rejoicing. Sackcloth falls off of God's people who are then wrapped in the white robes of Christ's own righteousness. 
all the judgments of God on his people fell on his son. And those judgments are reversed. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is the most important thing that you'll hear here today. That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And if you turn to Him, you'll be forgiven. God's judgment on your life is just. And without Christ, God's judgment on your life is heavy. But when you turn to Christ, putting your hope and faith in Him, God's judgments are reversed. God's judgments become God's favor. Oh, I pray that you would turn from your sin today and be united to Christ and be given a new life where you can walk in freedom and never have to worry about the judgments of God ever. Because the Father gave the life of His only Son to save sinners, their end is not bitter. Their end is sweet. The famine of God's Word is over. We don't have to wander around in search for God's Word. We have God's Word in our laps in front of us on our nightstands, on our phones, indeed written on our very hearts. J.I. Packer gave great advice when he wrote, Let us then take our Bibles afresh and resolve by God's grace henceforth to make full use of them. Let us read them with reverence and humility, seeking the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Let us meditate on them till our sight becomes clear and our souls fed. Let us live in obedience to God's will as we find it revealed to us in Scripture. And the Bible will prove itself both a lamp to our feet and a light upon our path. End quote. The famine of God's Word in Israel has become a feast in our day. There are more resources available to you to understand the Bible than in, in history ever. And so I pray that we would take Mr. Packer's advice, make full use of them. We live in miraculous times. We needn't fear the future, for it has already been settled. We needn't wonder whether good will prevail, because good already has. We needn't fear death because death has been defeated. We needn't cheat to put food on our tables because God is our provider. We can give ourselves to the poor and help the needy without repayment because God is our supplier. God forsook His only Son to save a people who had forsaken the only God. And may the Lord fill you with joy and peace as you meditate on these things this week. Let's pray. Father, will you help us in our weakness and in our neglect? Lord, I admit in my own life, and it's undoubtedly true, 
for many in this room, we have underappreciated the blessing of our Bible. And Lord, spare us in your mercy. Spare us deafness to your still small voice. Give us ears to hear and a hunger to read. We confess, Father, that like the people in Amos 8, we have given more of our hearts and minds over to business matters, to making of money and the acquisition of comforts than to the things of God. We've not trusted in your provision. We've not rested in the finished work of your son. And Lord, we ask that you would forgive us. Lord, make us a Bible-saturated people. May your word be on our hearts and on our minds and on our lips. Morning and evening. Give us an appetite to read and to meditate and to marinate on the truths of who you are and what you've done. Make us a Bible people. And give us grace to be selfless and sacrificial in caring for others. And may the joy that we have in the Lord Jesus spill out of our lives and onto others. Until Christ is all and all. Amen. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, the Bible gives you all kinds of assurances of pardon. One of them comes from Romans chapter 6, verse 23, which you probably all know. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord.